In today's episode, I am joined by the badass Emma Thomas. She's a retired professional Muay Thai competitor, known for a thought-provoking blog under the ropes and other crucial activities such as training Thai police and being a speaker at the UN Women. She fights the good fight by highlighting toxic problems in the Muay Thai and wider martial arts world such as sexual assault and gender inequality. After all, the first step to solving anything is by acknowledging that there's something to solve. The next step is finding solutions to do so, which you will hear all about towards the end of this episode. You're about to experience a new way to thrive in martial arts by exploring who you are, what you love and standing up for what you believe in. It's time to rise because this is where we challenge and say no to outdated industry norms and say yes to change so that we create a healthier, happier and thriving martial arts community. I'm your host, Laurine Zuhake. Welcome to the Rise to Thrive podcast. So Emma, you're the face and the author behind the blog Under the Ropes. Why? Why did you start that? Well, I started it in, I think, 2013. At that time, I was a professional Muay Thai fighter um, living in Thailand. I'm still living in Thailand now. But at that time, I was fairly new to Muay Thai, only maybe a year or so in. And at that time, it was really difficult for me to connect with other women in the sport. Um, at my gym, I was quite often the only woman or at least like the only woman who was there long term. So I felt quite isolated. So originally I started under the ropes just to connect with other women in the sport. And I thought, you know, when I was searching for other voices online, I didn't find much. So I thought, even though I'm just a kind of beginner fighter and I don't really know what I'm talking about, I'm sure that my experiences can help someone else in my position. So I just started writing and as the years have gone on, it's taken on many different shapes and I've, I'm no longer fighting, but uh, Under the Ropes is still going strong. And um, you also have quite some spicy topics that you talk about in your blog regarding toxic gyms, toxic behavior in gyms, um, sexual assault. What can you say about, about that? Yeah, so that wasn't the original intention of my blog, but as my time in the sport went on, um, these kind of issues came up as something that I, I felt really needed to be talked about. Um, originally, I just started documenting gender-based discrimination that I saw in the sport or that I experienced myself. And eventually, I decided to write about uh, my own experience of being sexually assaulted by a trainer, which had happened a few years before, uh, very early in my time in Muay Thai when I first arrived in Thailand. So I decided to finally write about it. And when I did, I was really, really shocked by how many women came into my inbox and said, oh, this has also happened to me. And I'm talking about women from gyms all over the world. Um, this, is, this is not an issue only in Thailand. And that's something that started to give my writing new meaning as I realized it really can start to have an impact. So I've been writing a lot about rape culture, not only in Muay Thai, but in general, sexual assault. And then recently, uh, as you mentioned, toxic gyms, because I, I have some personal experience with some quite abusive and manipulative coaches. And again, it was the same experience where I wrote about it and I thought, well, this is quite a, maybe an extreme example 
But again, so many people came into my inbox and said, it's like you're describing my gym, like to a T. So it makes me realize how common these things are and just how important it is to talk about it. So that's what drives me to keep writing. So I guess, yeah, the topics keep getting spicier, as you say. <laughs> so Emma, could you please then tell me what kind of um, narratives did you hear often? What are people, what are really the, the experiences, the things people feel when they are in a toxic gym and they tell you that you described it to a T? So I mentioned some of the signs when you first join, such as, first of all, love bombing by the coach, which you might not recognize when you first join, but sometimes, like when you walk into a new relationship, uh, a coach in the same way can kind of take you under their wing and really hype you up and say, I'm going to make you a champion and you're going to be so great. And they can treat you with a lot of favoritism. And often this isn't a bad thing, but sometimes this can lay the groundwork for manipulation later on. And in my experience uh, with one of my gyms, I found that this was a cycle that the coach would go through and that he would repeat this behavior with new people who came in. And when you fell out of favor, you were very quickly kind of discarded. So that was one of the first signs. Also, in terms of coaches being often quite charismatic and very charming, this often enables them to not only kind of disarm and kind of seduce people, they fall in love with the gym. I think a lot of us understand that feeling of really falling in love with your gym and with the sport when you first join and being really enamored with it. But later, this kind of makes you blind to other forms of manipulation that, that can come when you have a toxic coach. And some examples of that include not only some of the more extreme examples like sexual misconduct, um, sexual harassment happening in the gym. Sometimes it's, it's fighters being manipulated into doing things like unpaid labor. Or, you know, you see some gyms where they really thrive off members who work for free, um, maybe working in their office or doing construction work or something like that. And when you're a fighter, sometimes they really can kind of have a hold over you in that they stop you going to other gyms. And I mean, if you're a sponsored fighter, you have an obligation there. But I'm talking about when your coach is constantly disparaging other gyms, saying every other gym is terrible. Your gym is the best. If you want to be a good fighter, you have to be at this gym and kind of conditioning you to believe that this gym is the best, but also conditioning you to never seek out other training. And if you do, you will be punished. So there are a lot of people who got in touch with me after I posted uh, a recent article on toxic gyms telling me they had this experience where their gym was no longer good for them or they started to notice things that weren't right. But when they left, they were shunned. Um, some people told me that they had been totally blocked out by all of their previous friends at the gym after leaving. Everyone had been told to delete them from social media. They'd been kind of blacklisted from certain promotions, um, not allowed to fight in certain areas these kind of punishments, these can also kind of feed into more serious forms of even abuse and sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, and even physical abuse of uh, fighters at times. And I'm, I'm sure we could go into that a lot deeper, but have you kind of, have you observed these in these kind of behaviors in BJJ as well? Um, absolutely. I would even say you described my situation to a T. Um, like when I came 
I was definitely love bombed. Like he was, the, the coach was very, very nice, but I just really thought he was nice to everyone like that. You know, like I just thought, oh, it's just a very caring person. Um, not that I wanted anything more. And I was also in the beginning a bit like, whoa, it's like very, very positive. But I thought, why not? Maybe that is just like what a good gym should be like, right? In my case, I was also a beginning, uh, beginning a BJ white belt, so didn't know a lot. And um, where it really started to show more was when I started to date my now husband. He was also fellow white belt. You know, we white belts reunited, and the head coach really wanted me first, especially the first time that I really said no because I kind of kicked him out of my house. Um, cause the, the, the story was, I used to give some massages and everything. And I mean, BJ people, they're like all the time, like their bodies are wrecked. So I had all kinds of people over and it was never a problem regardless of gender. And when he heard about it, he wanted it too. And I did not think anything behind it because I, you know, I did it anyways for many people. And then when he came, it became very clear that at one point he started kissing me. And that's when I kicked him out of my house. And this was like three months after I started training there. And it was on Sunday. And I remember that I was so scared and angry because because I thought, oh, I finally thought I found a happy space to train. Am I now being kicked out? Uh, is this going to change anything? And I was also angry because I was like, I really just like to help people with their bodies through massage. Like for me, there's nothing erotic about it at all. And I felt really taken advantage of by me giving just offering a service, which is just, I mean, I also go to massages. And I don't expect anything else other than that they get these knots out of my shoulders or back. Um, so then after that, when I came back the next day, I got shouted at when he realized I started dating more that, that it might become serious with than my now husband. Um, he really tried everything to be first. So he would invite me to go when he had a tour for seminars, but I wanted to join him. Uh, he even one time said like, oh, we have this team dinner, which was not true. We just tried to isolate me. He started um, shouting at my husband, who used to be kind of one of his white belt protégés because he was good. He was doing well in competition as well. Then, of course, he also got kind of like kicked out and he was really confused, like what's going on? So then when I told him, that made, of course, a lot of sense. But it also really progressed into kind of unfair graduation, um, this sort of thing. So, yeah, what you describe. When they didn't get what they wanted, um, we got punished for it. And I know from also others, other gyms, also he he also didn't like when I, I, I traveled a lot for academia to conferences, so I would take my gi with. He didn't like when I was going to different gyms, even if I was just visiting, like in, in some bit more old school Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu gyms, is Creonte uh, concept that loyalty, as she also said, is super important. They don't like mixing. They don't like that you learn from various sources. And I, I'm kind of like, if you only stay one source, it become stagnant and still. So you need that anyways. But yeah, I also really realized like loyalty is very important. They talk a lot about loyalty, but you get punished when you do something they, they don't like. Yeah, it's almost like an overly jealous boyfriend who says things like, don't talk about our relationship to your friends because it's between us. When really that's a form of control because if you talk to your friends about it, they're going to tell you how fucked up it is, right? And you might actually learn something and then find it within yourself to leave. These people don't want you going to other gyms and seeing what it's like there or learning other techniques. You know, in, in a toxic gym that I spent a lot of time in, sometimes members would go away for a while and then come back and have a different type of kick or something. 
And the coach would be really angry, like, I didn't teach you that. You don't do that in my gym. And this is really my my first gym. This is where I started fighting, my first long-term gym. So I didn't know any better. I thought this was just how it is. And again, when you're new to martial arts, you just think this is like the martial arts culture. You, you, you kind of readily accept it, or at least I did. So you don't, you don't know any better and you just think, oh, okay, that's, that's what's important. Oh, I think it's just so easy indeed. As you say, you don't know any better. And that's just so mean that when you then go elsewhere, that's also why they don't want you to go elsewhere, you know, because if you go elsewhere, you see that it also can be done differently. So as you say, I think there's a lot of insecurity involved and that they kind of, the scarcity thing, they need to be like the number one, that they cannot accept that there, that, that there can be worldwide many gyms that are number one, right? I'm always like, why does it have to be one? It can be many because many schools can offer different things. I mean, in Muay Thai as well, like some are very good in clinching. Some are very good in this. Like yep. you have specialities. And I think if you want to get also a very all-round game, whether it's striking or whether it's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or MMA or any other martial art, I think it's good to get new input. And the fact that they don't want it. I mean, with our head coach, with like these these messages, he would delete every WhatsApp message. He would even delete like you as a content. So at one point my husband just wrote him that we would be late, like some months later. And he really wrote back like, who is this? Even though they had had several WhatsApp conversations before, but I'm kind of like, if you really delete everything, like what else are, I mean, you obviously are trying to hide something. And I think that are just practices that are unhealthy and doesn't help the coach on any level, nor the student. Yeah, you see some of these coaches who they gravitate to these positions of power, whether it's by being the top dog in the gym or being a head trainer or a gym owner because they want to have power over others. For some people, they might not necessarily start out with that intention, but the power dynamics over time because of this social hierarchy in the gym, which I feel like is even more intense in a martial arts situation can become really toxic over time. And you see people start to really abuse their positions of power in many ways. Yeah, I also think that when people tell you all the time how amazing you are and you don't have pushback or people also hold you accountable, you just forget that you're still human and that having, a, for instance, a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or maybe that you are a, a champion, that doesn't mean that you're like a champion in life and that you just can do and say whatever you want. So now my next question. So say we have, you know, discovered and discussed a little bit things that are common that people experience. So what would you say to listeners that are right now in such a situation that they realize, oh, my gym definitely has some red flags and I'm not so sure what I or should do or can do about it? I think um, it's really important to not have the gym be your entire social circle. And that's much easier said than done because I think as martial arts athletes or as fighters, that is your life, right? Like the only people you spend your free time with are usually your training partners. This means that you don't really get out of this cult mindset. You don't get any outside influence and it makes it so much harder to see those red flags And for me, it, was, it wasn't until sometimes I would discuss my gym problems with people outside the gym, like my workmates or family members, and they would just be like, so baffled, like, why would you put up with that, you know? And then it started to make me think like, oh, maybe this isn't actually normal, <laughs> you know? So I would say start there. 
but that's easier said than done. You know, not not everybody has access to those resources or communities. Um, obviously, I think there are a lot of online communities that you can reach out to. And in Muay Thai, uh, especially for women, um, there's one that I'd really like to recommend. is called the Muay Thai Roundtable Forum. So you can go to uh, eightlimbs.us and there is a Muay Thai Roundtable Forum there. Maybe we can uh, supply the link. But there is also a women's only section there where people can feel a little bit safer to share things that they might in a more open space. But lots of people will drop topics in there like, hey, is this normal? And people can weigh in with their own experiences. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, we'll definitely add that link in the show notes uh, when we when we air it. Thank you. This, I think, will help many. And yeah, I totally feel like my best friends are indeed not in martial arts. And that helps so well. It was the same in academia, that my best friends were not in academia either. Because indeed, some of the academia is also such a toxic place at times. And it was just good indeed to talk with them about it. And then you would see their eyes go like, what? it's going on and indeed as you say that they wonder like why do you put up with that i think somehow that martial arts because i mean we all love you know the karate kid and dragon ball z whatever all of these different things and somehow because in many ways we love the space so much you kind of forget that when things happen that are absolutely inappropriate we also need to keep the space safe we need to maintain it and not ignoring it that when you ignore it that's just when Yeah, bad vibes and bad behaviors can just thrive where I really think this is really something that not only the coach, but like the whole gym culture in a specific area is you all play a part. You're all responsible. But of course, if you're just a newbie and you don't know any better, it's very hard, very hard to do that. Do you have any other advice to, sorry, yes. No, I just wanted to touch on when you were talking about how, how hard it is to speak out against maybe abuse or you know, misconduct in your gym situation. It just got me thinking about how, you know, our gyms are quite often like a second home or is, you know, we often refer to our gym community as our families and there's nothing wrong with that, but it means it's, it's so hard when maybe you have experienced uh, mistreatment or you've seen it take place in your gym that you don't want to speak out because then you are somehow destroying that family dynamic or you are bringing shame on your family, on your gym. And, you know, there's there's that internalized shame because like when you are in an abusive relationship, sometimes you, you still love that person. It's complicated. Like you still would have love for your gym and it's not necessarily that you want anything bad to happen, but sometimes you want people to just recognize, hey, that shouldn't have happened to you but you don't always feel safe to come out and say these things because the family dynamic is so strong that you are made to feel like you are ruining it if you speak out. I think that's a very, very good point. I mean, that's why I usually don't like this um, metaphor, like, oh, you know, it's it's like a family. Because I, I mean, nowadays, when I listen to people, friends, I think so many families are super dysfunctional. So I'm also kind of like, yeah, well, no wonder that martial arts communities are dysfunctional as well if you compare them to families. In that regard, it's an apt comparison. And sometimes I think I don't think it's the right one because sometimes I'm kind of like a safe space where you learn doesn't have to be somewhere where you where it's immediately like family ties. Sometimes I just feel that we as human beings, we just feel so lonely that we kind of really want this 
the space. And indeed, as you say, you don't want to destroy it. But the question is, when you speak up, are you? I mean, I know in the BJ, many are like, oh, don't create drama and all this sort of stuff. But actually, I think when you ignore drama, that's how you create bigger drama. Because if something arises and you can immediately address it, it cannot really grow much more. It's maybe a slap of the wrist. It's maybe something minor. Maybe it was a misunderstanding altogether. But then you can still really do a lot with it without it blows up. Whereas when you let it grow and fester, even if it was just based on a misunderstanding, nothing really bad necessarily, but you don't know because you let it all go out. That's when sometimes then people leave that also when it's on bad terms or this sort of thing. Where I think also, especially in a martial arts where you have a lot of contact, also physical contact, and yeah, where also emotions can can run high. I think it's very important to immediately address when something is up. Because if it's truly nothing good, then you know you can move on. But if it is something, you can immediately nip it in the butt and keep the space safe. And that also means that sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable conversations. You're not going to like it. But if you're a coach, if you're a leader, if you're a gym owner, that is part of your job as well. Yeah, and I have I have the same attitude now where I kind of see it as a little bit of a red flag when uh, people are describing or coaches are describing themselves as kind of parental figures. And this was very much my relationship to my coach. You know, I looked at him like a second dad. He would often describe me, you know, like his daughter. And at the time, you know, this felt great. And I think it's part of the way of making you feel special. But then also when I left, because I was kind of pushed to a breaking point, it was, how could you do this? We treated you like a daughter. Mm-hmm. It made it so much harder for me to realize or to spot the the negative things that were happening because I looked at this person like my dad and in the same way he would also describe himself as a life coach and to me this is such a red flag now you know these people who they kind of kind of project themselves onto the students like mentors not only in martial arts but in life and in business and all these aspects and sometimes I I now I, I feel that's a bit of a red flag yeah because I think that Becoming a life or being a life coach, I'm pretty sure there are many good ones out there. But as with everything, I think there are also many out there that just think like, oh, we give you some some advice and, you know, you should do it. Even though I think good coaching is that you give your students the tools that they can figure it out themselves in the end. Because if you just tell them, I mean, what's the point of telling them? Even with with optimal skill acquisition, even with, with learning sports or martial art, we know that just the body doesn't necessarily listen to what coaches say. The body has to, you know, realize and invent it its, uh, themselves. But yeah, I find, I mean, it's also a really colonial thing. I mean, I know that when the Netherlands, like my hometown, during colonial times when they ruled, so to speak, Indonesia, they, they, they were then also talking to the local uh, indigenous rulers as, you know, the little brother. They were the big brother and they were like the little brother. And to me, I find it sometimes also so condescending and so problematic because you still also when it's like, oh, you're my daughter, I'm your father. But it also means that they place themselves in a position of power again where and that is maybe like, look, usually you think that, oh, you know, parent, kid, it's a positive thing. But it can also be such a negative thing because in the end, I'm kind of like, no, I pay you to coach me. I pay you to make a good fighter or to help me become a good fighter and to coach me also when I fight. And that has absolutely nothing to do with whether he regards you as his daughter or not. And also if he chooses to treat you as as his daughter, but you still choose to leave, that's your choice. You didn't ask him to do it. So I think there's just so much 
that makes it unnecessarily just so much more difficult where I also think as coaches, we really should also draw a line for ourselves. Like, what is my role here? Because I don't necessarily like, like people come to me, they tell me things and everything. And I tell them like, well, I can tell you what I did if I experienced something like that, or I can share you my thoughts, but I will never tell you what to do because I cannot, I should not. I mean, on a martial arts basis, that's your job. Like then you can help them like, hey, you know, adjust here, adjust there. But when they come to you with personal things or that sort of stuff, that's not really my jurisdiction. Yeah. I think these lines can become really uh, blurred in martial arts uh, situations, in gyms. And like you were saying, only because of like the proximity, the literal physical closeness of us training together, but also you're going through these very emotional experiences together. At least for me, fighting was a very emotional experience. I for me, it created such bonds with these people that I trained with, um, and it made it so much harder for me to disentangle myself from them when I saw bad things happening. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, not everything is bad. Like, nobody is wholly bad. And I think that's also, I find sometimes people expect that it's so black and white, like, oh, he or she did this, so they're bad, you know? And I'm like, that's not, that's not the whole story. Because I also know the coach that we then left, I mean, he did good things for men that had issues, for instance, you know, he really used martial arts as a way for them out, like some that went to jail, just kind of to, you know, rehabilitate them and that they could participate better in society. So it's not wholly bad, but still the fact that you do good things, that doesn't cancel out the bad things you do. You still should be held accountable for the bad things. And hopefully people will adjust and, you know, make amends so that while still continuing doing the good things that they do, and I also think that that's also so hard to leave a gym because you make many very deep bonds and meaningful connections. I mean, we also found it very hard to leave the gym. Not We didn't have issues to let go of the coach, obviously, but we made many good connections. But then again, we also thought if those connections are truly good, then they also should stay good even when we would leave. So it's also kind of like a thing to see like how people respond. But I can understand that many are just afraid of leaving or that they're afraid that they are being ostracized as indeed the, the trader or this and that. I totally understand that. However, if also a listener isn't in a position like that, when you stay, you enable them. You know, if you don't try to do anything or if you don't want to do anything, sometimes leaving and going to a different place is also a statement without that you have to directly confront them or make an issue out of it. I think what you said about it not being black and white and it, you know, having good and bad aspects is really important to highlight because this is a misconception, not only about gyms, but I mean about, I mean, you could apply this to anything, sexual harassment, uh, domestic violence, whatever, abusive relationships. It's never all bad. If it was all bad, you would never go into that situation because you would see it for what it is in the beginning. And in my gym situation, there were so many good parts of it. I mean, I wouldn't be who I am today if I had not gone to that gym. And I'm still now so grateful for the experiences that I had there. But we have to we, we have to kind of destroy this narrative that people are all good or all bad because it makes it harder to identify these things. Someone can be a great coach, can have had such a great influence on you, but kind of mistreated you in other ways that you might not be able to reconcile. Or someone may have given you a great experience in the gym and you personally may have not had any issues but that does not mean that they could not have been abusive to somebody else in your gym and just because they might be a really respectable person or a nice person or have been great to you or have really helped 
however many people, that does not mean that they should not be held accountable for the negative impact that they have. I think this is a very important important point that you're making because indeed I also heard often that people said, oh, but they always treated me well, therefore canceling out the, the total experience of somebody else. And I was saying, yeah, but also if, I, if I'm very honest to myself, nope, I am not always nice to everyone. Nobody is. Mm. That's one thing. And of course, I mean, that's like on a very like s- slow, like I'm not saying like I really abuse anyone because there's of course a sliding scale. But just if you think of human nature, we are not nice to everyone. So I'm pretty sure that people I, I meet that a bunch think, oh, she's a nice, nice lady and other things like, oh my God, she's horrible, right? So also for in, in the gym, if somebody approaches you or says and comes with arguments or an experience, I also would just be hesitant to try to cancel it out. Just indeed, as you say, because you had a good experience, it doesn't mean that others do as well. I mean, I know in the in, in school we left, I think most guys have an absolutely great experience with him. But then again, they're guys, they're not women. And women have a different experience. Also, when it comes to consent and to keeping schools and the meds safe, that sometimes you have to accept that even though somebody is great to you, it, they can still be so inappropriate that it, they make your school unsafe. And I think for many people, this is hard to reconcile with because it's so much easier when we make it black and white. You know, when that's a villain, that's a bad person, then it's super clear. But if, you know, you, you also know, yeah, but they also have good good aspects, which everybody has, um, that makes it more difficult. But I therefore still think that that should not be a factor to therefore silence you and not speak up. Yeah, I mean, if we paint all these people, people who do these kinds of things as monsters, then how can we identify them? in our daily lives because monsters are not people that we know personally or that we think that we know when in reality these things are happening around us all the time and sometimes perpetrators are people that we know and we love and respect and they could be our coaches our training partners or you know fighters that we look up to and you know how can you look at those people as monsters you can't otherwise they also wouldn't be able to be so effective in abusing others. And that's, I think, the main thing that, especially people are being treated well, is that they often overlook, is that just because they were treated well doesn't mean that they groom others and um, step by step. I mean, often it's not this hit and run type of thing. It takes months, years sometimes before it ends up in sexual assault or something like that. Usually it takes a while before that happens. And I think maybe we should talk a bit more about grooming. What 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 is grooming and how does that take shape? Because I think for many, that's still sometimes a bit difficult topic. So a while back, I wrote an article that was documenting just in the UK, martial arts and mostly Muay Thai instructors who had been convicted of sexual offenses against young students that they were teaching. And you know, doing a few Google searches, it's honestly shocking how many of them there are that are reported in the news. These are just the ones that are reported. But um, in so many of these cases, they were young students who started training at these gyms as children and obviously really looked up to their coaches. And again, because these coaches have such positions of power, they can have such a hold over their students to convince them to do whatever they want. And you, I'd, I'd rather you define uh, what grooming is from your side. So we have in uh, in our five drive method, we also talk about um, indeed what's grooming, what is consent, and power imbalances. And maybe I, I start indeed with the power imbalances. That the moment somebody is coaching you're a student, that's a power imbalance. 
if there is a difference in age, there is maybe a power imbalance. Especially when you're, for instance, dating one of your students, there is a power imbalance because at the same time, you are also training them, you're coaching them. So that means that if you, like the best case scenario is when you want to say your your feelings are real, truthful, and you decide both to go dating, you have to make that relationship more balanced, which means that basically she should then be taught and coached by another coach who is responsible for her training so that you get this, this power imbalance out. So I know like, uh, look with, with me and then my husband was easy because we were both white belts. So we were like equal there, but if he would have been my coach, it would have been already a huge power imbalance. So that's first kind of, you need to take that power imbalance out. Now, as regards to grooming, I mean, I know crazy stories of a coach like calling some students like two o'clock at night saying, I need you, I need this done. And they would get up and do it. And these are also like male students. Like it's not only male, females, it's like also like uh, say male coaches with male students that he just expected them to do it. And if they wouldn't do it or if they wouldn't pick up because they were just sleeping, then there was hell to pay. So also there you can see that with grooming, they create this bubble, this completely different reality where you kind of forget or overlook inappropriate behavior that you think that that is normal. You get kind of a new normal bubble. And I think that happens a lot in the martial arts world that reality, I mean, reality is always quote unquote, but it gets replaced in kind of an alternative reality where some coaches behave pretty much like absolute rulers. Yeah. And I think it's often like a slow drip feed of behaviors that they start to add in over time so that you won't notice it straight away. And, you know, when you mentioned coaches calling you up in the middle of the night and asking you to do things, I've absolutely experienced that and also read about it in other gyms where, because the mentality is you have to be completely dedicated to your sport if you want to be a champion or you want to be a fighter or whatever. And that means being dedicated to your gym. And as we mentioned, being loyal to your trainer and some take that to the extreme where they will use that to almost kind of test mm -hmm. your, your dedication to them to see how far will you go for me. And with my toxic coach, it was having people work for him for free or give so much of their free time outside of training hours. And you mentioned um, trainers getting into sexual relationships with students. And I think that is such a huge thing to touch on because when I was looking into martial arts instructors uh, in the UK who had been convicted of this kind of thing, many of them who their cases had gone to court, uh, survivors were saying, you know, I started out as just the favorite student and then it grew into either a sexual relationship or what they th what at the time they thought was a consensual relationship because maybe they were, in, were at an age where they did not realize that this was actually inappropriate because you don't see it at the time or because we're not really taught what is and isn't inappropriate. And because of the coach who is in a position of power is telling you, this is okay, this is normal. And there have been lots of fighters who've come out later as adults and said, what my coach did to me was wrong. And I just didn't know it at the time. Sometimes you don't realize it's abuse until years later. And I think we're seeing this across so many sports, not just combat sports. Yeah, in general, more and more gets up, you know, then it's in gymnastics, then it's in volleyball, then it's like, it's, it's just, I think what is so 
the key thing is is that these these young athletes they just simply trust the coach and in many ways they should be able to trust the coach right i mean in the end you you kind of you assume that they have your best interests at heart and i think the disheartening thing is that in many cases you can't you can't assume that they have your best interests at heart and i mean that's they go as you say they test the boundaries step by step they go further let's say you have a coach that brings a student back home at first you know they just drive and you get out of the car you go next time they walk with you to the door and then after a while they go with you in the house and then at one point later that's then where um, maybe a rape happens right and at any point when people then say like yeah but did you say no why did you let him uh, go in your house in the first place it's like these typical questions that survivors get yeah well First of all, you trusted your coach and often nothing necessarily happened. But what did happen was every time this boundary was pushed further and further and further back, especially also when you're in that bubble, it's very hard to see. I mean, also for me, when I left that gym afterwards, I could see things much clearer for what they were. And then I realized, wow, why did I stay here for so Why did I endure this so long? Like, why didn't I leave earlier? Yeah, and sometimes these things are happening when coaches are taking their students away to tournaments or events um, and taking them out of that gym environment but still having that position of authority over them but maybe taking taking them out of the supervision of their parents or something like that there was a case in Muay Thai in the UK some years ago where an adult instructor had taken a bunch of his fighters away to an event and he checked into a hotel and checked into a room with a young female student who I think was 14, maybe 15. And it wasn't until the reception staff in the hotel flagged it and called the police that this was even flagged as an issue for the gym. And that guy was uh, later arrested. I don't know if other gym members knew about it, but on some level, it was accepted that he had the power to, to dictate, okay, you're sharing a room with me and this is normal. Yeah, I think that is so crazy. Simply that, I mean, so also in our course, we also talk about travel because, you know, competitions and that it's very important that you have, especially with kids, that you have parents there, obviously, that you're not alone or that you have, that you are with more people. Like, I also don't like to be alone with a child, not because I would do anything inappropriate, but just they can say things, things can, you know, you don't, you're just so, you're also helpless there. So I also always recommend make sure when you travel with children or when you are, you know, when you go with the opposite gender, make sure you're just like not alone because nothing then really happens because there are more eyes, it's public, it's like in a hotel thing, like how indeed we don't know whether the gym knew or other people, but obviously checking in with a minor is not okay when you know it's just not and that's also one of these things that I also want to address is that I often hear also like in the BJ realm you know when a woman speaks up then often voices are like yeah but was it rape like was it uh, you know basically asking was it bad enough uh, did the police get involved did he get convicted or this kind of thing and I'm like guys 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 behavior can already become inappropriate long before it becomes illegal or criminal. And I think that is something that is one of these huge misconceptions that I just cannot emphasize and repeat often enough that behavior can become inappropriate way before it becomes criminal. And that you as a gym owner, but also as a paying member, 
when you see these things, you do not have to accept that. Why? I mean, you pay for a service. I mean, nice that they all talk in familiar terms and family terms, but in the end, you pay for a service. That's all. Yeah, and I think this just also goes into all of the surrounding misconceptions about sexual abuse and sexual violence in general, um, not just in a gym setting, that make it so much harder not only to identify when it's happening to you or happening around you, but for for people to actually speak out about it. Because as you say, you get these victim blaming mentalities to say, maybe it wasn't that bad, or maybe that wasn't a real sexual assault, or because you knew him, or because you were seen to have consented in some way, or because you didn't fight back, or yeah, there are just so many misconceptions that this could be a whole other podcast. Yeah, I think consent is one of like the biggest things. And yeah, we also go spend a lot of time in that during our course where I say like, as long as there's no definite yes, there is no consent. If somebody is under influence because you went partying, they cannot really give good consent. They cannot. If they're a minor, obviously, then they are, are technically like legally not, they cannot give consent. And I'm like, and even if they do, the moment they say stop and they revoke that consent, the consent is gone. So silence is does not equal consent. And again, I think this is really something that just needs to be repeated. Also from a trauma perspective, if somebody freezes, it's a trauma response. They freeze. Sometimes they even fawn that they go with it because their nervous system thinks that is the most appropriate response to keep themselves safe to keep them out of more harm. So it's for me very simple. Like if there's no definite yes, then there is no consent given point. Yeah. And this is something that I've talked about a lot in sharing my own experience of being sexually assaulted by a trainer. Um, I didn't fight back. I didn't move. I didn't use my voice. I didn't use my hands. I nothing. I froze up. And at the time, because I knew so little about how sexual violence happens and that I knew absolutely nothing about um, the trauma response in the brain that I didn't know that this is an entirely normal response and not only normal it's often the safest thing that you could do because sometimes fighting back is not actually a safe measure and this is something that I spoke publicly about a lot because people obviously assume that, oh, you're a fighter, so you would just fight back, right? And for me, that absolutely was not the case. And it's something that I, I feel really needs to be said, because if someone with martial arts training who you would assume would fight back doesn't, then how we, how are we supposed to expect anyone else to do so? We can't hold that against people and say, well, it wasn't it wasn't actually sexual assault because you didn't scream or you didn't fight back or you didn't say no. These are such basic misconceptions. As you say, we just need to keep debunking over and over again. Yeah, that's that also brings us to the kind of the next topic. Indeed, as you say, that there's a difference between martial arts and self-defense and that, of course, self-defense is by no means rape prevention or anything like that because you cannot promise that that's one of the things that i really hate when people say like oh you got raped or this and that you should learn how to defend yourself i've seen flyers from self-defense courses saying like oh do you want to stop being a victim or do you want to avoid being a, a rape victim sometimes even say that and i'm like that's a promise you cannot guarantee and you also feed into fear which i really find absolutely inappropriate but as you say like i know there are fighters 
also professional fighters just like yourself indeed they just froze and it happened and then they get shamed for like yeah but you can fight and i'm like it, it are two different realms i mean self-defense and martial arts sports martial arts it is a different realm and even when you practice a lot of self-defense mainly what you have to practice is indeed to somehow keep your rational brain as active as possible when fight flight freeze or fawn kicks in and that's the whole point like you don't in some cases, you don't know how you will respond, regardless of how much you trained, because the nervous system does what the nervous system does. And all of these responses, they are there to keep you safe. They're also good responses. However, sometimes one is more efficient in one context than the other. And of course, the trick is to somehow learn how to deal with that, but that is very difficult. And I think that martial arts is then sometimes a bit heralded too much as the way to to keep you know keep women safe because even with rape prevention i'm like okay so say somebody does a course and somebody does indeed try to um, sexually assault a person on the street and say that person did choose fight and fought back and got out then i'm like yes that is very good for that person so on this personal basis rape was prevented but it doesn't mean that this person, this attacker, is not going to do it again to somebody else who maybe does not have that tool. Like I think the whole term rape prevention, to me, is absolutely problematic in kind of like the martial arts, um, yeah, in, in a martial arts context. I absolutely agree. And look, I've, I've never taken a self-defense class. I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with self-defense in itself. I'm sure there are lots of benefits to taking a self-defense class but my issue with the marketing of it is as you say calling it rape prevention and not only is it really problematic because you're putting the onus on the victim to protect themselves but I also find it really distasteful how a lot of these advertisements are capitalizing on people's trauma or their fear of sexual violence as a marketing tool and often these self-defense coaches, they're just, sometimes they're just some dude who has some martial arts experience. They don't know anything about trauma. They don't know anything about the uh, fight, flight, freeze, fawn response. They, they don't know how to respond when members are being triggered or having a panic attack or how to ground them and how to bring them back and how to make them feel safe in that moment. I think if you are running a self-defense class, and you are advertising it as some form of rape prevention, you have a huge responsibility to the safety of the people who are participating in that class. And I don't just mean the physical safety. You are dealing with people who more often than not have already experienced trauma. Because I don't know about your experience, but from my observation, most people who seek out these classes have already experienced trauma and they come to these classes as a way of almost taking their power back or healing in some way. So I think that you have to really take care of them in more, more than a physical sense in these classes. Is that your experience with your members? Uh, yes, absolutely. So when we have women's self-defense courses, um, more than half uh, have trauma, traumatic experiences. And I think what we have to understand with trauma is that people who experienced traumatic events, it feels often as if their choice, their, their, their authority and governance was taken away from them. 
And what self-defense can do very well is to step-by-step help them to take that back, that they realize they do have a choice. They can decide that they're not just, you know, that others, events, people decide over them and they just stand there and, you know, cannot do anything about it. But of course, as you say, as coaches, you have to understand how to help them and how to approach them because some may get triggered. They maybe have a traumatic flashback. What do you do? How do you bring them back? Uh, many start maybe crying and also with tears it can be a good thing maybe it's relief maybe it was too much so they got re-traumatized like many things can uh, can happen and I think especially when you indeed market self-defense courses the audience you're most likely reach are indeed as you say people that have traumatic backgrounds so yes regardless of how good your techniques are or anything like that It's the mental aspect, especially in self-defense, I think, that's the most important. Because in the end, in a self-defense situation, it doesn't matter whether how you physically behave looks nice or not. It has to be effective. And I think that starts with a mindset. And to create that, that takes a lot of time. But as you say, many start self-defense as a way of healing as well. So as coaches, you can't just startle them you know if you ask them to close their eyes you have to be careful because people that don't feel safe in their bodies closing their eyes can be extremely confronting walking behind them suddenly touching them without consent that are all big no-gos first you need a connection first you need to create a safe space where they feel safe and then step by step you wind that window of tolerance and that will look for every student different that's what i heard lately also you can't just take their addresses and then tell them in the beginning when they come and then tell them like well, one of these days, I'm just going to, I don't know, shock you and see how you fare. You cannot do that. You can't just not do that. That's how you feed in the fear and the panic that, again, somebody that should be able to be trusted, you can't trust them. Yeah, I mean, I think some of these self-defense coaches, um, they kind of take this approach that they they feel like it's their duty to make women aware that the world is unsafe, as if we don't already know this, as if that is not the reason that some of these people have actually come to this class in the first place. So to say to them, like, oh, there are creeps out there and, oh, you've given me your address and maybe I'll, you know, have you ever thought about how that makes you vulnerable? Or have you thought about where you park your car when you're coming here? Like, your role is to make these people feel safe and empowered. And if you are immediately trying to do the opposite of that to kind of prove your point, you are not a safe person to be training with, at least in in my view. Yeah, I also think that indeed it's stating the obvious because in the end, what can self-defense do is that it just gives you more tools and just better chances that if you ever would be in a self-defense situation that you have just better tools. But the outcome is, we don't know, right? So yeah, I also really think that people underestimate how important it is to make people feel safe first. And we also know this from neuroscience, that the moment that the brain, the the nervous system feels safe, that's when they start learning. That's when they start opening up. That's where healing takes place. You cannot ask people with a traumatic background to start healing in a self-defense class when their amygdala, when their fight, flight, freeze, fawn is continuously activated. That's not possible. Yeah, and I think... um... If you're going to teach these self-defense classes, you have to not only be aware of how these different types of violence actually happen, but the majority of the time it's somebody that you already know. It is not usually somebody jumping out at you in a car park like we might be told in a self-defense class. And although, yes, that does happen and it would be great if we knew how to respond in that situation, I think that 
real self-defense classes have to teach how these things really happen. And also that it is not your fault if you didn't fight back or if you didn't respond in a way that you were trained to do so, or if you didn't shout and make yourself big and say no, like you were fighting off a bear or something. Like, it is not your fault if somebody chose to do something to you. I think that's really important to instill in students. I think so too, because often they feel so powerless, and then of course it comes to shame. On top of that, when even when they are trained, because there are also some people that are trained, and they still didn't fight back, and indeed... It's a normal response. I also always say, like, what happened to you is not your fault. Your trauma is not your fault. But now it's, it is your responsibility. So it, is, it still needs that, of course, you need to work with it, you need to roll with it. But it's not your fault. And that's why, you know, be gentle with yourself. And um, step by step, work towards the goal to overcome specific obstacles that you are struggling with. Yeah, and I think a lot of these... Not a lot. I'm just saying uh, certain self-defense instructors that I've listened to and observed have, you know, come out with things like you have to take responsibility for the situation that you put yourself in. And, you know, maybe don't take a dark alley at night or if you're going to a party, then maybe don't drink too much. And first of all, that is victim blaming no matter which way you look at it. But also, why would I need to pay you to tell me that? You know, like the idea that I would pay an instructor to not only victim blame me, but kind of almost state the obvious is, is kind of laughable to me. I think, I just think a lot of these instructors are not really aware of how these things are really happening. And one thing I wanted to ask you um, in your self-defense classes or others that you have observed, are you also giving them uh, resources and tools that they can reach out to later, like, I don't know, counselling services or rape crisis centres, are you providing those kind of links at the end of the course? Yeah, they, we do have uh, a directory for that. And also it depends. So I also have one-on-one -on -one classes with people. And I mean, I teach ladies. My husband obviously has privates with men. And uh, sometimes they also bring a the therapist, right? So then it's really tailor-made to like their needs because what's for one really huge is for another one super easy and they can go to a different level of pressure, so to speak. In my self-defense class, I make very clear that they don't have to do anything that they don't want to. They can always drink a sip of water, you know, when tears happen, completely normal, no shame, and also nobody will judge them. We're all here for ourselves. And also, it's a friendly atmosphere. I say everybody here is, you know, especially the first day, I say everybody's a bit nervous and a bit insecure because it's a new space, new people don't know yet how it's going. So I always tell them what to anticipate, what are we going to do today? That's always very helpful because then they don't get necessarily startled. And indeed, they can always reach out to me. I always say if something is the matter, uh, you can always contact me. And some also did when something happened uh, outside or anything else they did. So then you could kind of give them... I would say the first aid kit, you know, mental first aid, and then, of course, uh, refer them to uh, professional healthcare providers, depending, of course, on the severity and, and, and what their needs are. Because I'm not a therapist, so, you know, I am um, limited there, but I can bring them back. I can reassure them that what they're experiencing is normal and help them set out the next steps to find help so that they remain safe. Okay, yeah. No, I think that's great to be networking with those kinds of service providers and linking your participants to those kinds of things 
Um, in the Muay Thai community, I get a lot of people in my inbox um, seeing personal stories that I've shared or issues that I've highlighted and coming to me and sharing their traumatic stories or looking for help. It's really difficult because I've been in their shoes and I totally understand how it feels to have nobody to talk to and to not know where to turn. And at the same time, especially where I am in Thailand, resources are, are very limited. So I've really made a point of putting together kind of a list of, of as you say, like a almost like a first aid kit that I can pass out to people like, hey, here's where you can go for legal support. Here's where you can go for counseling because I am not a service provider. I'm only an expert in my own experience and it wouldn't be responsible of me to be giving out that kind of advice. Um, so yeah, I, I try and link people to those resources as much as I can. Yeah, but that's great. I mean, we also have um, off the zone like a directory that is growing where we have per country and sometimes even per state because, you know, the US is big um, and that's also helpful. So also any listeners of you, if you know some of the resources, please send them to us because we are creating this directory that also if you are maybe approached by a student in, I don't know, say in Germany and you don't know, then you can uh, get many links from us. So we try to get cover as many countries and, and, and cities and states as we possibly can precisely for that reason. You may not be able to, you're not a therapist, so you cannot do that, but you can help them by connecting them to the services that can help them. So then my last question for you, what is your favorite quote? You know, I actually don't have an overall favorite quote, but I do want to share something from a book I'm reading at the moment. It's a book I've been meaning to read for a really long time. Uh, it's called Lifting Heavy Things, uh, Healing Trauma One Rep at a Time by Laura Kudari. And she is a trauma-informed strength training coach, uh, among many other things. And she talks about using weight training, weightlifting, and really any kind of movement as a means to work through trauma. And I'm reading it this week, and a quote that really jumped out at me is she said, it's hard to experience your body when you hate being in it. And I think that a lot of people who have maybe have experienced trauma can relate to that. So that that's really been on my mind this week. I think that's beautiful. I think she really hits the hammer on the nail because indeed with trauma, we know that somehow the body and the mind get separated. So in, in, in yoga, for instance, you realize that women that got, for instance, sexually assaulted, uh, when they are asked to open the hips in specific postures, that is very hard. It can be very triggering or they feel numb there, that they just completely feel disconnected from that body part. So I think what um, this strength and conditioning is lifting coach says, I think she's very, very spot on because indeed, if how can you heal if you hate being in that space, in that body? And indeed, that's why Trauma experts like Bessel van der Kolk also say that, yes, talk therapy and everything that is very useful can be very useful, but it's only one side of the story. The other is really like movement, that you kind of restore this connection through the body with the mind. And I'm pretty sure that lifting 100% does that. Yeah, I mean, as well as also training Muay Thai, in the last few years, I've also transitioned into powerlifting. And I've found it empowering in many of the same ways. Um, learning to take up space and, you know, feeling strong and feeling powerful. And for me, it's really been a way of, 
of taking my power back. So yeah, that, that quote really stuck with me. And I also, I want to mention that a couple of years ago, I partnered with a survivor support group in Thailand for survivors of gender-based violence. And we held a Muay Thai session for them. And again, this was in no way a self-defense class. Um, actually, the founder of the support group is a fellow survivor activist, and we were speaking together at some advocacy events. And she listened to me talk about how powerful Muay Thai had made me feel and how it allowed me to feel comfortable in my body again. And again, how it felt like taking my power back. And she asked me, you know, would you be willing to set up a class for some of my members so that we could extend some of the benefits to them? And I was more than happy to do that. To be clear, I didn't teach it because I'm not a coach um, and I'm not qualified to do that. But I reached out to some uh, Thai female instructors who ran the class and it was really just a community confidence building exercise. Um, I think this is where the real value is. If we're going to talk about trauma or violence and martial arts, that is where, at least for me, the real value is, is in healing and community. Yeah, I think that we also know that talking to people doesn't um, have as much effect as doing activities together. And that's why I think that indeed an activity, doing something that you both love, Muay Thai, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but also can be anything else. Um, I think so much healing can take place there. So are there any other projects you're working on now or, or in the future? Yes. So I've been talking a lot about sexual misconduct in Muay Thai for a very long time and usually in, the, in a storytelling realm. I've done some events with UN Women. I spoke at a rape and sexual assault survivor handling conference for Thai police to talk about my experience, why I didn't report, you know, what kind of resources I would have liked to have had. Um, and I also spoke at Southeast Asia's first gender equality summit. And at all of these events, I spoke about my personal experience of sexual assault in my sport. It was really empowering for me and so impactful. But at the same time, storytelling can only go so far. You know, I think with storytelling, people listen to it and they have a moment and they go, oh, that's terrible. And then we move on. Meanwhile, I'm getting messages in my inbox every day. So I've been thinking for a long time of what do I really want to do to make an impact? And I decided that it's really important for us to get some hard data on how this is happening and how much is happening. So I have partnered with a university here in Bangkok to do a research project on the prevalence of sexual misconduct in Muay Thai. And I really wanted to make sure that it's done the right way. This is not a random survey. And although I'm not a academic student right now, I really wanted to for this to be a valid research project that could be published and that could maybe one day lay the groundwork for policies somewhere in the sport. So that is what I'm working on right now. I'm working on that in partnership with some Thai experts in gender-based violence. And at the moment, we are pushing that through the International Review Board. So when that is ready to launch, I will definitely let you know. Please do. And is this then Muay Thai worldwide or Muay Thai in Thailand? Yes, it is going to be open um, for responses around the world because I, I want to get a sense of this issue in the sport everywhere. And this is something that 
bothers me a lot. I get a lot of responses from people saying, oh yeah, this is a big problem in Thailand, right? Or this is normal in Thai culture. And I really want to push back on that because this kind of thing happens everywhere. It might show up differently, but if you think that this is not happening in the States or in the UK or in Europe, you are delusional. This is happening everywhere. So I want to get a sense of the issue all around the world. But yes, certainly um, I am focusing on getting a response in Thailand and specifically from Thai women. And of course, the study is being conducted in both English and in Thai because we are not hearing anything publicly in Thailand about this kind of thing. There's only been one documented case. And when I say documented, you really, really have to search for it of sexual misconduct in Muay Thai reported by uh, Thai women. So yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that we can get more of a sense of the issue with this project. I'm really excited about it. I'm also super excited about it. My academic is like, yes, data. Because sometimes when you then look at data, that does not coincide with your feelings sometimes. So I think it's so great to need to get some hard data. Of course, not, not everyone may speak up, but you definitely will get a sense and especially with enough formulas, you know, you can kind of see like, okay, that's what we got. And then you always have a bit like those, you know, the percentages that, that may not have reported. So I'm very much looking forward to that. And please do let me know when it airs, because I'm pretty sure many people would like to help. Because indeed, from data, you can create beautiful policies and also then implement them and make the martial arts world a safer space. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I stopped fighting five years ago. And over time of started focusing more on these issues. I've started to realize recently that this is the direction that I want to go in. This is how I want to make an impact. And I, I really hope that getting this hard data can be the next step in that process. And yeah, I will definitely be talking to you about that because I think with your academic background, you could probably help me with that. I would be delighted uh, if I can help. I'm there because this is super important. It's also what Off the Zone also stands for, isn't it? And also this podcast, we want to push back, um, challenge outdated industry norms and indeed come with solutions. So it's not only about saying there is a problem, there is a problem. Yes, you need to acknowledge a problem before you can do something with it. But then also I want that something is being done. So I'm very, very thrilled and looking forward to learning more about this project. And on this note, I want to thank you very, very much. For sure, I will um, invite you back because you're such a fascinating lady and you have so much to share. This is only like tip of the iceberg. So um, we'll definitely talk again soon and dive into many other aspects. And who knows, maybe then there's already an update about this project. For sure. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I think we have so much more to talk about. So yeah. Absolutely. And uh, for the listeners, I will add all these things in the show notes. Also that book that Emma mentioned about trauma-informed lifting so that anyone that's interested can easily find in the show notes. Then I'll say goodbye for now and we talk soon. Thank you, Emma, for this conversation. It is a true delight catching up with you like this and I can present our listeners with a sneak preview that we'll be having a second episode dedicated to internalized misogyny in martial arts. For those curious about the book she mentioned and how to connect with Emma, you find them in the show notes.